It's time for the Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2, a nationwide leader in background checks and employment screening solutions. People G2 gives their clients access to the best human capital management and due diligence tools available. They are dedicated to helping their clients with all of their people-related decisions. To learn more, go to www.peopleg2.com. Talent Talk centers on the topics of talent recruitment and management, leadership development, company culture, and employee engagement. These are all timely topics for CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR professionals, and business leaders. We hope that as you tune in to listen each week, whether to the live broadcast or to the podcast on iTunes or iHeartRadio, that you hear something you can take away that will help you grow and impact your career in a positive way. And now, here's the host of the Talent Talk Radio Show, the founder and CEO of People G2, Chris Dyer. Good afternoon, and thank you for tuning into Talent Talk. It is the first Talent Talk of 2022, and we are excited to be back, to be here, and of course, have two fantastic guests lined up uh, for today's conversation about talent, about being talented. Uh, and really, that's what this show is all about is you know, I love to learn from people, find uh, uniquely talented people who are managing maybe uh, staff in a particular way, or maybe they're just uh, a really uh, highly motivated and, and, and unique person that has something that we can learn from, that we can uh, maybe get a little piece of wisdom. And so instead of me being the only person to go out to lunch with them or sit, you know, kind of corner them at a conference, we really created this space to allow everyone to, who wants to, to tune in, to listen even to ask questions. Um, and so you can do that on Twitter uh, by following at PeopleG2 or use the hashtag Talent Talk or uh, live on LinkedIn and YouTube right now, uh, Facebook. Uh, if you follow me, you can certainly get the, uh, the live feed right now and begin to ask questions, begin to start that conversation with us. Hopefully, you know, let us know what you're thinking. Now, we've had so many great stories that have come out of the show. I've been really uh, fortunate be able to take those and turn those into some great stories that may, made it made their way into uh, my first book, The Power of Company Culture, as well as my second book, Remote Work, that came out last year. Uh, if you're interested in either one of those topics, well, I'm sure you have Amazon or wherever you buy your books online, it's easy to find them. So uh, Talent Talk is live every Tuesday, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Um, and we do uh, push this out as a podcast. So a lot of you listen to us there on Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, iTunes, wherever that is, go ahead and subscribe. But I also mentioned we do the LinkedIn and the YouTube now and uh, live on Twitter. So if you want to catch us there, don't forget to subscribe. That way you never miss an episode. Probably YouTube is the easiest one to subscribe to uh, or follow me on LinkedIn. But uh, if you have questions, again, make sure you send them to Apple G2 on Twitter. And we're happy to try to, in live time, uh, answer those questions and keep you into the conversation. My guests today include, all the way from London, uh, Steve Butler. He's the chief executive at Punter South Hall Aspire. And after the commercial break, we'll bring in uh, Mike Prose. He's the CEO and co-founder of Cratic AI. Hopefully I'm saying that correctly. Probably not. I usually mess one name up somewhere along the lines. But let's go ahead and uh, bring in uh, Steve Butler. Again, he's the chief executive at Punter South Hall Aspire. Steve is an experienced SME building a business leader uh, uh, chartered manager, academic researcher, business author. Sounds like he does a lot of cool things. So welcome to the uh, show, Steve. Hi, Chris. Good to speak to you. Yeah, wonderful to have you here today. How are you? 
And, and you know, what, what's, what's important for us to know about you for our conversation today? Uh, well, firstly, I'm good. I had COVID over Christmas. So Ooh. today is my first day back at work post-COVID, but, uh, but all's good. Um, in London at the moment, we're, you know, government guidance is, is work from home. So the business has had to return to work after Christmas 100% at home you know, which is kind of uh, not not ideal. You know, I'm, I'm very much a supporter of, of flexible working, but when we're restricted to one particular type, it's, mm-hmm. it's certainly not ideal. Right. It's not flexible, no matter if you're being required to go to one place, it doesn't matter if that's in an office or in your home, that's not flexible, right? <laughs> exactly that. Yeah, yeah. So what's important for us to know about you and, and your background, uh, you know, as it revolves around talent? Yeah, so I'm I'm CEO of, of a business that I founded six years ago. Um, I have 150 staff, and they're spread across the UK. Uh, an office in London with um, with about 40 staff in, and, and the rest are spread across the UK, either working from home or, or from our, our regional offices. Um, the business has grown through acquisition, so um, I've made seven acquisitions over the last kind of six years. So. Um, Culture is really important because it's it's the thing that kind of holds the business together when you when you make an acquisition and, and bring a new new set of people in. As you mentioned, I'm, I'm a business author. I've actually written four management books about my experience over the last six years. Uh, some of the challenges that I, I faced. Um, I started off writing about managing intergenerational teams and some of the challenges I faced with different generations in the workplace. Um, I then wrote about um, older workers and how we can manage to, to keep older workers in the workplace for longer mm-hmm. because we've got changing changing demographics. Uh, and most recently, I published a book called Inclusive Culture, which is which is about the the whole diversity inclusion journey, uh, and certainly a journey that that frightens a lot of small businesses. Um, and and I break it down with. Um, some real life stories of, of kind of different people in the workplace and things they've experienced and, and some, some things that we've learned about how we've managed the business to, to drive a more inclusive culture. Well, certainly last year we saw, you know, really a spike, I think, in that, that conversation around diversity and inclusion. It was always something that was there. And I felt like if you went to a conference, there was a talk about it. And there was maybe a person that in bigger companies that was put in charge of it, but not until last year did I notice the conversation really saturated into every corner of the company, into every team. And, and you know, there was the political conversation, there was the socioeconomic conversation, there was a cultural conversation for the company, cultural from a society standpoint, really the conversation kind of really kind of flowed, I think, in a very important way. Um, can you maybe explain how you see the diversity inclusion uh, conversation and maybe why is inclu- you know, that inclusive part so important to culture, you know, from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I mean for me, the, the whole dialogue around diversity inclusion has kind of been dominated by the larger companies. As you said, they can they can throw money at the problem and they can have a, a board level head of head of diversity inclusion. They can have network groups they can spend a huge amount of money on kind of training and and uh, and things to to develop this within within their businesses but it's it's the small businesses where the where the challenges lie and and certainly in the uk you know 90 percent plus of businesses are small to medium-sized businesses so that so the challenge really exists in those in those companies and and if you're a small company it's it's very difficult to create 
uh, a very diverse set of people. You know, you've got people perhaps in shared roles. You've got people with um, very a mixed set of expertise. Uh, and you're perhaps drawing from a different talent pool because you can't hire at the rates that the, that the larger companies are. So diversity inclusion for, for the smaller companies is a challenge. And, and kind of where do you start? Uh, and for me, it's, it's all about creating the inclusive culture because I've seen big companies go out and hire the most diverse set of people. Uh, and six months later, they've kind of moved on because the culture's not right for them. So for me, it's about setting the setting the tone for the culture first make the culture right for your future hires um, so that you attract that diverse set of people into the business and they want to stay so it's it's all about hanging a sign outside the door that says you know we're, we're open and welcome anybody uh, and we've got the policies and the infrastructure to make it work for anyone we're, we're just not excluding people because of you know various criteria right so, I mean, what's the business case for 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 companies? I mean, I know uh, in my research and what we've we've been looking at, it's pretty similar for big companies and small. That you know, if you get diverse uh, opinions in there, if you can expand the your organization by having different voices, having different opinions, that we, the the more we see that, right, the better the company seems to do, the higher the profits and all of that. Is that sort of what you guys are seeing or is there a different lens to that as well yeah, for the business no, case? It's absolutely that simple. You know, the more ways that you can look at a problem, um, the better chance you've got of solving it. So that the more ways you've got people looking at things with different experiences and different backgrounds, the, the better. So that is the business case. You know, the, the more diverse you are, the more you can solve problems and the better you can service your clients. And, and I think something that's often overlooked is that, especially in my industry, in the investment and savings industry, is every business should reflect their client base. Um, because if you want to understand your clients, you, you need a mix of people that reflect your, your client base. So, so you need to kind of set about making sure that's the case. And, and that's not been the case in the investment and savings industry. It's been very dominated by white middle class men for... Mm -hmm you know, for the whole of my career. And, and right. I think that's that shaped some of the problems that we've had in the industry and perhaps some of the financial issues that, that have been created in the past because this there's this groupthink um, and we need to move away from that. Yeah, and, and groupthink can happen even if we have diversity, right? I mean, I think leaders have to be very, very careful about groupthink and, and putting in solutions to ensure that we, we don't allow a group to go along. Cause I've seen teams that are incredibly diverse, but if the leader is overbearing and they want everyone to go along with their answer, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I mean, you can easily still have group think. <laughs> so, so hence the culture is important. Having everyone having a voice and having the opportunity to share and challenge um, and, and for, to, to collectively feel comfortable for that kind of sharing and challenges is, is the only way that you're going to make that happen. So as you say, diverse team as possible, but if you haven't got the right culture within that team, you're not going to get the right outcome. Is there a point when diversity itself becomes, can, can we ever be too diverse? And I can think well, of maybe what one ridiculous scenario in my head, but I mean, beside from that, you know, if you brought people from all around the world who none of them spoke a common language, you could have maybe two, they couldn't communicate and work together, right? Then it would be impossible, but why would we do that? So a step below that, 
is there a point when that becomes problematic or is it just no and we need to just do it as much as we can i think you know and it's it's about the definition of diversity you know and i think there's some you know in the uk there's some protected characteristics and the obvious mm -hmm. ones that everyone thinks of of, of kind of gender and, and race but, but I think it goes much beyond that. It goes to neurodiversity, it goes to mm. social background. Um, it goes to kind of regionality of, of the country that you're, that you're in. You know, in, in the UK, um, if, you, if you have regional offices, you're gonna restrict your talent pool that you're recruiting from. Whereas if you, if you have the flexibility for people to work from home, you open up the whole of the UK as your, as your talent pool, and therefore you're, you're more reflective of your, of your clients. And you really took me uh, kind of where I wanted to go next, which was, you know, diversity is about diversity of thought uh, for me, first and foremost. There, there, of course, there are those other categories. We can say diversity of gender, diversity of, of sexual preference, diversity of uh, political opinion. I mean, we can pick any category, but it's really about thought, right? And, and, and keeping us from having the same types of people come in uh, who, have, who are essentially going to make the same decisions and regurgitate the same ideas over and over and over again. Uh, yeah, yeah, exa exactly. And, and I think that diversity of thought is covered in lots of different ways. It's, it's people from different regional universities. It's people that haven't been to university so that you're kind of recruiting at kind of school level um, and perhaps older worker level that, that, you know, that are kind of mixing, mixing within the, within the teams. It's, it's also that neurodiverse talent. It's hiring people that are, um, you know, ADHD or, 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 or some other type of neurodiversity because they look at problems differently and they solve problems differently. And I think perhaps in the past, we've excluded some people because it's been uncomfortable or we haven't mm -hmm. known how to react well with them. Whereas if we can create the culture where they can thrive as well, then, then that's gonna benefit the whole <laughs> team. Yeah, and, we, and we've talked with other guests on this show. We've had this experience and others have as well, where they've been able to hire people who maybe could not have uh, lasted long-term in an office setting, and yet are fantastic employees, brought an incredible amount of value to the organization, but what they needed was flexible work or remote work in order to be able to, to do that. They, they, whether it was getting to and from work or it was being in that office setting consistently, that, that was not something they could tolerate because of who they are or whatever their particular needs or, 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 um, you know, uh, considerations might be right. Yeah. I, I interviewed a lady for the book, uh, who was ADHD and, uh, her, her skill was standing on stage and, and speaking. She said she felt at most at peace when mm -hmm. she was speaking to an audience of 500 people, which terrifies most people. Um, so she made a fantastic business development person and, and she was progressing really well within an investment firm in, in that kind of um, business development role. But the thing that she absolutely hated was turning up for a meeting and having to read investment reports and, and um, you know, represent what she'd learned from the investment reports. It was, it was the thing that she hated the most. So for it to work for her as a team, they had to kind of share the work and say, well, okay, well, mm -hmm. you're, you're good at that piece. We'll, we'll give you the bullet point information. You, you need to go and do the presentations and, and we'll do the research stuff. And we, and we won't expect you to do that research stuff. And, and, then, and then you get the best of everyone.
Yeah, I, I and I totally uh, understand that feeling. Being up on a stage of 500 or 5,000 people, I'm just happy as a camper. Talking to one or two people, you know, small group, love it. You give me 12 to 15 people, and I'm, it is like torture for me because it's like there's too many people to make a connection, personal connection. It's not big enough that it's a stage and you're, you know, giving a speech. And so trying to finagle all of the eye contact and the, you know, feeling like you're being a good listener to 12 to 15 people, it just, you know, drives me nuts. So I, I get that when people kind of have the different perspectives on how they want to, you know, where do they feel most comfortable, right? Where do they feel like they do their best work? And that's often a question I don't think we ask enough of people. Uh, you know, where do they do their best work? Where do they get their best energy? And what what drains them, right? And, and I think as leaders trying to help them eliminate what drains them, if that's possible in, in that role. Um, yeah, and, and this is this is why it becomes challenging because what this requires is quality managers that will take the time to sit down and understand their team and structure a project according to the skill sets and, and strengths that they've got of their team rather than perhaps for a traditional way where they just said, right, this is the task we've got to do. You each do your element of the task and, and you know, and we'll come back together and, and it'll all be fine. You know, managers of today have to be much, uh, much higher skilled than they were in the past. You know, uh, you know, that command and control style of management mm -hmm. that, that existed in the, in the eighties and nineties doesn't, doesn't work anymore. And it's not appropriate for creating a, a, an inclusive culture. I would say it hasn't worked since the industrial revolution, but <laughs> I don't think anybody knew any better way to do it or they weren't talking about it. Right. I mean, there's actually some really good examples. Um, 3M has been doing, doing it well, kind of how we would expect today for a very, very long time, but they were just an absolute, you know, nobody knew that. And they were the exception to the rule. I think everybody else was, well, how did my parents and how do my coaches and how do my teachers interact with me? That's how I'm going to manage my people. That's all they knew. And then, and, and people put up with it. And I think there's a, at least now an understanding is a better way to do it. And people are not putting up with it, right? They'll leave their job. If they're going to have a micromanagement type of a boss, or if they're going to be uh, not allowed to sort of have some of that freedom to, to, to do their work in a way that makes sense for them. Right. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's, very exaggerated for for young people joining the workplace at the moment because they've they'd have a they've had a different education to to, to the way mm -hmm. that I have and they've worked in a different way, so they they don't understand that that legacy way that I kind of grew up with and they they've had a very flexible environment for the way that they've studied and the, and the way that they've collaborated at at university and and they they need that flexibility in the workplace whether that's working in a coffee shop and the office and at home, whether it's kind of dressing informally, you know, asking them or putting constraints on them is, is, is pointless because you won't get the, won't get the most out of them. And, and yeah. I think this is a big cultural shift because, because when I joined the workplace, you know, my boss wore a suit, I wore a suit, you know, we were all in the office nine to five and that was kind of what we did and nobody challenged it, but we, the status quo is broken now. Well, and, and I will say that because I've worked with a lot of organizations and I noticed some big differences, you know, just in, in what's important from company to company. And, and so I usually say, listen, figure out what's important, what you think really needs to be in place, be really open and transparent about that to your people and those that you're hiring. But then anything else that doesn't fit in that thing, 
then it, if it doesn't matter, then don't, why have a rule for it? Why put in any energy around it, right? Because I've been in companies where they want to wear, I mean, even today, they want people to dress up. And you know what? If you know that going in and that's important to that company and you're cool with that, then go be a part of that team, right? But if you're not, then okay, then you can choose not to work there. Um, whereas other organizations are super casual. Everyone wears jeans and you know, oversized sweatshirts to work every day. And that's totally fine. That's not something they need to worry about. So I think it's just to your point about, does it matter, right? Is it something we need to, to deal with or not? And is it important? I, I think as a CEO though, that you want to, you want to open up the widest talent pool possible to you when you're recruiting. Uh, and as soon as you put restrictions on that talent pool, you, you're shrinking the talent pool down uh, mm. and, and you're perhaps not going to get the best people that you, you could have got. So right. I, I think um, certainly for CEOs of my age, that, that means kind of reflecting and saying, well, do, are these things important to me? You know, are they, are they shaping the business or, or can we just let some of this stuff go? Hmm. So it's interesting. You're saying, <clears throat> you know, to look at how do we have the largest talent pool? And I guess I'm looking at it saying, how do you figure out what's really important to you and, and get a little bit niche so that you can get the right people you know, they're going to be in there. I mean, I think we're both saying the same thing. We don't want to exclude people that we don't need to exclude by having unnecessary restrictions and rules. But I do, I can clearly see there are CEOs that really care about certain things that I'm like, I could, I don't care. That's not how I would lead. But they really care about these three things. And so if they're just honest about it, right, and then, and they bring in people who want to be supportive of that. I mean, I've seen very high stress, work really hard, you know, environments and I've seen other environments, but it's very like kumbaya and it's everyone is supporting each other. And like, and yet they're both very successful. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I think, you know, again, you, you have to open yourself up to what the possibilities could be. Mm -hmm. So for, for example, you know, I, I have a, I have a certain perspective on the world. Um, and, and that's, that may be right or that may be wrong, but I need to kind of look at it, the multiple perspectives. So within the business today, I have a reverse mentor. It's a, it's a woman who's in her late 20s. She's kind of Polish. Uh, we, uh, we meet every month and we talk about a whole range of things. Uh, and what that does is it gives me a, a, a very grassroots, different perspective on the, on the business. Now, some of the stuff that we talk about, I just think, well, no, I just know by instinct that you know what I've done in the past is right. But but other other times I'm like, well, that's that's really interesting. And we never thought of doing it that way before. So um, you know, why 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 limit yourself to what you what you currently know? Right. Right. Well, uh, this has been absolutely fascinating. And I hope that people will have an opportunity to to go and look you up and check out your books. Um, maybe you could mention those and also, you know, how, what's the best way for people to find out more about you or, uh, to get a hold of you? What's the, what's the best way for everyone to, to do that? So, so the books are on Amazon, uh, Steve Butler, uh, the most recent book is inclusive culture. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, the business is called Punter Southall. So you'll find us at punterSouthall.com. Fantastic. Well, Steve, thank you so much for being such a great guest today. Uh, and bringing in so many fantastic insights. Hopefully we can have you back at some point and give us an update on, uh, uh, clearly you'll probably have written another three books by the time we get back <laughs> to you again. So uh, oh, please keep up the great work and really appreciate you being on the show today. 
Great. It's been lovely to speak to you. Thank you. We'll right back after this quick commercial break, and we'll bring in my second guest, Mike Procy. Imagine buying a newspaper and discovering that the news you're reading is six months old. There isn't much that stays the same for six months. And the same thing goes for background checks. In a time when so much outdated information is being passed around, it's good to know that PeopleG2 offers something different. At PeopleG2, we provide today's intelligence, not yesterday's news. Our value-added approach offers you a fully FCRA-compliant solution that includes up-to-the-minute information. By combining industry-leading technology with old-school human investigation, PeopleG2 is able to give you information that is accurate right now, delivered quickly to our online system, or integrated with your HR system. So ask yourself, are you comfortable working with old news, or are you ready for a different kind of background check company? Visit PeopleG2.com or call 800-630-2880. That's 800-630-2880 or PeopleG2.com. And now back to our show. Welcome back to the Talent Talk Radio Show. In case you missed my first guest, uh, you can catch uh, Steve's interview on our podcast. We'll turn into it next week. But let's go ahead and get to my second guest. I'm excited to bring in uh, Michael Prose, uh, hopefully I'm saying that correctly, uh, CEO and co-founder of, and another one, hope I'm saying correctly, uh, Cratic AI, uh, where they're going to change the way people think about employee engagement. I'm excited to find out more about that. But uh, don't forget to follow us at PeopleG2 and the hashtag Talent Talk and let us know what you think. But uh, Mike, welcome to the show, sir. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here. Uh, so why don't you tell everyone, what's, what's the most important thing for us to know about you for our conversation today? What, what do people need to know about you and what you're passionate about? For, for me personally, uh, that's, a, that's a tough one, me in a nutshell. Uh, so I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cratic AI. Throughout the pandemic in the past 20 months, I got married, I bought a house, I got a dog, I baked some bread. So I think I did everything on the <laughs> pandemic bingo list. So uh, I also have a food blog and I love board games. And that's about everything, everything there is to know about me in 15 seconds. Wow, that's 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 quite a bit, quite a bit. And you're 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 focused on your company. I think we all did the uh, the uh, the COVID uh, bingo thing, uh, but it sounds like you've got a lot of interests uh, and a food blog at that. That's a whole other separate thing. So I'm sure there'll be a lot of people out there excited to maybe find that one. But maybe can you explain to us what is Cratic AI? What do you guys do? How does that work? Yeah, absolutely. So Cratic AI is a SaaS suite that builds culture in teams of any size. So we use AI-generated surveys combined with a weekly discussion between team members to measurably improve employee morale by a facilitated communication. So in a lot of the trials that we've done so far, 30-plus trials um, with, you know, over 400 individuals, we've shown sustained, we've shown and sustained an improvement of 44 points in employer employee net promoter score relative to control team. So that's a lot of fancy talk, but at the end of the day, it just means employees are talking more frequently and more positively about your organization than ever before. What's really exciting about this is that we have a referral rate of about 98% and a response rate of 97%. So people really do find the platform quite engaging, and I think that's a lot to do with our questions. So it's great if you've got people engaged and they're in there. And then how does that then translate into you know, what is it leaders can get from that? What is it that leaders can really pull from your system and, and maybe potentially help with their people in a better way? 
I think at the end of the day, something that, you know, I personally struggle with and maybe a few people, a few of your listeners might struggle with is, you know, if we are pursuing a hybrid environment, a completely virtual environment, or even an in the office environment, how do you maintain that culture? How do you get authentic communication happening? So often we can, you know, get caught up in the hustle and bustle of daily lives that we don't stop to actually take the time to connect with our employees um, or with our teams. So it really helps people kind of create that space to connect. Uh, there's also a really cool component of it that helps remove a lot of our own biases. So I personally went through with one team, which was a small energy company, and uh, it was very interesting. It started off just like every other team. We get everybody together. They're a little bit nervous. They start using the tool. And um, someone in the tool was far and beyond um, registering as quite engaged, quite motivated, like really engaging with the tool, really giving the other team members a lot to think about. And uh, this individual is, is what I would say probably with my own unconscious bias, I wouldn't have initially thought of them as a leader. Um, I had bias kind of thinking that a leader is, you know, maybe the loudest one in the room or the mm -hmm. one generating the ideas or whatever that traditional leader looked like to me in my mind. But this person was actually a little bit more of an introvert. But based on everything we were seeing in the tool, they were unofficially leading the team. So, of course, at the end of the day, they need to opt in to share any of that data. It's all the employees own data. So we keep that separate. But they did say that they wanted to share that. They, they started working with their leader on a little bit of a performance plan. And I think it completely changed the trajectory of that person's career. And they might not have had that experience otherwise if we just kind of think about traditional meetings. So it really gave them a place to contribute and show what they were capable of. Well, I really love that story because we have talked on this show many, many times about how do we better uh, recognize our introverts in, in the company? I think to your point, we, we naturally assume that someone who's an extrovert, and I am a card-carrying extrovert, but that our extroverts are our leaders and they're the ones who should take on these projects. And they're the ones that tend to open their mouths and raise their hand anyways, right? Mm -hmm. Yet there are sometimes a better choice there's a better option or there really is somebody else who's really running the group and we just don't know it because they're not telling everyone what an awesome job they're doing they're not sharing what they're doing they're not out there you know being their own uh, hype man or hype woman like mm -hmm. us extroverts are um and so there's things that we have to think about doing i think that's part, i think that's why slack has been so valuable for our organization because you can see right? It's so much easier for them to go in and write it. You can see who's really doing things as opposed to being in a meeting and who is the loudest person or who talked the most, right? Or acted like a leader. No one acts like a leader on Slack when you're typing it. You have to read it and you have to really think about it. I think it's really fascinating that you guys were able to kind of see that. Are there other areas or maybe the, the AI helps people kind of better understand themselves? I, I think definitely there's areas where it helps people better understand themselves. One of the one of the most interesting stories that we went through actually with another team that was a, a different industry, but fairly closely related. Uh, they went through actually, you know, the first set of questions. Again, what we do is we work with IBM Watson. So it's no more rank out of 10. How are you feeling out of five? It's all text-based response. So we ask questions like, you know, what's the difference between manipulation and influence to kind of drive a really kind of insightful dialogue. So one individual in this tool was um, putting in her answers, you know, she's been with the team for quite a bit, and it was registering lower on positivity, quite a bit lower. 
And so she actually, uh, in, in one of the Cratic sessions, raised her hand and said, you know, the, the tool's broken. It's saying that I'm not very positive here. Um, you might want to go back and kind of fix that positivity ranking. So we kind of explored it a little bit. Uh, and we asked, well, would you be comfortable sharing some of your answers with the group? And she's like, yeah, absolutely. And she kind of read some of her answers out loud to the group. And then I asked to the group, like, how do you feel about this? Do you feel that this is positive responses? And one by one, the group kind of slowly said, yeah, you know what? I don't really read that as that positive a response. And you could see the moment of self-realization on that individual's face where the, in person, they had a very um, green-yellow communication style, if you're familiar with Myers-Briggs, like very mm -hmm. open and friendly and people-focused, but their email communication style and their typing style was very, very red, and it wasn't coming off as positive to the rest of the team. And I yeah. think it, it might have been the first time this person ever received this feedback in kind of a safe environment. And, and since then, she kind of started working on it. She started playing with her language a little bit more, expanding on it to kind of boost that positivity score. So we see people do things like that all the time in the tool. We're very careful to say that you never want a score that's too high or too low. Some of the best conversations I've ever been a part of have not been overly positive, but they've been growing conversations. But just by analyzing people's language and the language that people use within the team, um, you're able to generate a huge amount of self-awareness and self-insights. And I think that's what we really love helping teams and individuals do. Well, it's so many people either don't know or they forget that when we write something uh, that people tend to take it negatively, right? There's an automatic bias to take that, the worst version of, of whatever it is you wrote. There is, they don't have the smile they don't have the body language they don't have the hand gestures they don't have anything else to use except what they're writing and so that, that's why the the emoji is so great or the gif or whatever you can put into slack or an email you can put something in there to be like yeah tom didn't send me that report again and then you can put like a smiley face because you're like but it's not that big a deal like i just yeah. haven't gotten it yet right instead yeah. of he didn't send me that report again and if you put nothing there oh they're pissed right there, there's something going on here right yeah. So it makes a big, big difference. That's, we were just talking with Steve about this. That gets back to having good leaders, right? Having good mm -hmm. managers, people who can call that stuff out, who can talk about that, who can recognize those things and help train their team in a better way. How does your system, and maybe this is a part of the vision of what you guys are doing, how does it help maybe those leaders, those managers do a better job at helping their people? I think one of the very interesting things about Cratic is a, a lot of my previous uh, experience with employee engagement, it often came in the form of, you know, the annual engagement survey where it comes, it's top down, everyone gets the same questions. Then there's a little bit of a black box component afterwards where you don't know what happens with it. And then maybe something comes out of it afterwards. And that maybe. was a lot of my, maybe. maybe. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and that, that was a lot of my experience. Um, why I think people have kind of taken to Cratic a little bit more is because it's very transparent and open. The team sees all the questions and answers right away and they engage with it. And what we see is people actually start solving their own problems. So if we work with an organization, and for example, we run 10 teams through Cratic, they don't all get the same questions. Based on the team's response and how they're answering questions, the tool will actually take you in a different direction of the things that you want to talk about. So for one team, peer-to-peer -peer feedback might be really important, while another team might be worried about leadership accountabilities or their corporate values or whatever it might be. So we create a very personalized experience for people to kind of go on that journey. And so 
one one of our visions that were kind of really important is ensuring that the, a single team can see value in this, even if they don't do it with the rest of their organization. Any single team will see value in authentic and open conversations. Our vision overall for kind of the future of employee engagement is giving every CEO in every organization a live kind of culture dashboard of their employee engagement, where we currently have balance sheets and income statements, but Craddock delivers the final piece of that, which is an employee wellness statements of sorts. Uh, and that's kind of the, the direction that we're heading in right now. Yeah, and I think it could be really uh, helpful for, I think, companies or, or teams to think about, you know, what are new ways, like like a system like yours, where, you know, we can, we can think about our people in a different way. We can find new ways to, to figure out who is, who, who is a leader and who is thinking positively and maybe negatively. And like, but I really like this idea of, you know, kind of using the uh, IBM Watson or using sort of a really smart AI, figure that out. Cause it hopefully can remove a lot of our biases and a lot of our, uh, you know, there are so many like built-in bunches of crap in our head, our filters that life has put in front of us that if we're not really aware of them, and we think we all try to get rid of the, as many as we can or be aware of as many as we can. But I've, I've taken like those biasy tests and, and like you, you can find something. I mean, everyone mm -hmm. has some somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so how do we make sure that we're not being tripped up and potentially losing out on a great employee or not promoting the right person and all that good stuff, right? It's just, it's so important. And I'd, I'd build on that a little bit, Chris, if I yeah. can say not only for the individuals is it so important, but also as an organization, because using natural language processing for the first time that I'm aware of, we're actually able to rank and report organizations against their values or help them develop their values if they don't have them. So if, for example, an organization says that curiosity, collaboration, and diversity are all part of their corporate values. You can measure that in the language that people use every day. Your listeners have probably already in just the, you know, 10 minutes that we've been chatting, um, developed a little bit of a profile on me and who they think I am as an individual based on the language that I use. And you can do the same thing within an organization to actually see how you're performing against your, against your corporate values. So it's just a very exciting kind of field to be in right now. Yeah. Are there some sort of uh, myths or I guess culture myths or things that, you know, you've discovered uh, while implementing your, your, your AI into the, into teams? So we've done this now with about 40 plus teams, I think over 400 users and over 2,500 kind of culture huddles, the teams facilitate the huddles themselves. But there, there's some common themes that even challenged my assumptions or I had thought mm. were fairly accurate that we learned were not um, one thing that I had always believed in the past kind of graduating university was that it's all about employee happiness. If you have high employee happiness, you're going to have high employee engagement. We've really kind of shifted our perception on that a little bit. Now, what we kind of say is that employee happiness is an outcome of a good culture. Employee happiness is an outcome of good collaboration, high psychological safety. You can't just drive to increase employee happiness. You need to drive to increase the cultural traits in an organization. And then as a result, you see an increase in employee happiness. If you're just going for employee happiness, then throw a bunch of ping pong tables out there and, and mm -hmm. you're fine. But it's about measuring the important things and actually changing those. So that was a big one that kind of stood out to me. Another one that 
um, I had I had thought about, but my views have since changed on, is that every culture is unique. And this is one that people generally push back on a little bit because everyone, you know, every culture is unique to a certain extent. But the things that people want in their culture and that people are looking for in a good work environment aren't actually that unique based on what we're seeing. Like people want authenticity. They want to be listened to. They want to be heard. They want to work in a respected work environment. And all of these things are fairly consistently found in every team. So that's where we see credit kind of guiding a lot of teams towards. Um, the, the last few that we kind of see is one that we've often heard is it's hard to quantify the impact. We found it to be quite the opposite. There's probably too many things right now that you can measure, especially when you're looking at natural language processing and people's tones that they use. Um, but it's about having the right metrics, not necessarily every metric. So we really focus on employee net promoter score, which is how likely are your employees to promote the organization to others. And that's something that we really drive towards. But we also look at things like creativity and language, friendliness and language, alignment. And we try to shift all of those um, in a direction that we think is, is beneficial to the company. And lastly, I'd just say that uh, I used to think that having a good culture takes a lot of work, but I, I really don't believe that anymore. I think if you have a great culture, it kind of just takes care of itself and keeps moving forward. What I've kind of seen or experienced is that a bad culture takes a lot of work. It's very mm -hmm. difficult to bring the best of yourself every day and to come in with positivity and and you know keep contributing when when a culture feels kind of the opposite of that but if you have a great culture it actually isn't that much work at all you cut you show up you do your thing you're in an environment where you feel respected heard and everything just kind of works uh, quite naturally humans want to work in that environment well so is this if someone were to to turn on your your Kratic ai system tomorrow is this something that they run and you know by their team or is it run by you guys more as consultants so we're we're pretty adamant that it is run by the team and for the team. Um, I think the last thing anybody wants is is a group of consultants coming in and watching you and, and evaluating your culture. So it's very much a team run experience. We put the platform and the tool in the team's hands and the managers and leaders can kind of take it forward from there. We do facilitate oftentimes the first Cratic session just to show people kind of, you know, the behaviors and we have some uh, learning guides and everything that help people kind of walk through that experience. And so they do see us host the first one. But one of the best parts about Kratic is immediately after people put their own spin on it. And that's a really cool thing to see because we can see I've seen people host Kratic sessions much better than me, much more engaged than me, very, very open. And it gives me a lot of ideas on how to improve the way I host. So everyone can put their own spin on it. One of the really cool things we've seen with one fairly small company that was growing quite quickly is they found it was a great way to onboard their new employees. So when you first join an organization, you know, you're struggling to find out how you provide value, how you fit in, where you can provide value. But because everyone can put their own flair to a Kratic session, we've seen uh, some amazing individuals kind of just step up right away. It's their first week, they host a session and it really gives them a chance to kind of show a little bit of their own personality. And, and that's been pretty cool to watch our customers go through. Well, uh, the most important question is before we go, uh, how can people find out more about you? How can they you know, find out more about Cratic? What's the best way for them to reach out? Uh, so our website, www.cratic.ai is a great source of information. They can also reach out there and leave their email uh, or reach out to me directly, mike at cratic.ai. Uh, and, and I'll respond there and we can kind of talk about uh, any next steps or I'll answer any questions that you may have.
And if anyone is, uh, you know, spelling challenged like I am, it is C-R-A-T-I-C um, and not with a K, it's with a C. So yes, dot yeah. AI, which sometimes still stumps me up. I try to go to <laughs> dot com or dot CA, but dot AI. Dot AI. So Mike, you, Mike, thanks so much for being a part of the show today. Uh, really enjoyed learning more about uh, what you guys are doing. It sounds like a great uh, service uh, that companies should really be taking advantage of. So really be fascinated to see, you know, how this evolves for you and the company and, and what other great things and even your food blog, uh, maybe, maybe up to in the future. <laughs> Thanks so much, Chris. Have a great afternoon. Thanks again. Thanks everyone for tuning into today's show. Hopefully you gained something can, you can use in your own career in a positive way until next time, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio, brought to you by People G2. 